The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 1:12 through 2:26. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw there is more to gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen, will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. 
For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that, it must, that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to the despair over all the toil of, of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than, he, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. We are... We are in our second week of our sermon series going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and, and like I shared last week, this is not necessarily a crowd favorite. Uh, it, it has a little bit of a gloomy tint to it pretty much all throughout. In fact, I'm surprised uh, that those of you who are visiting or even anybody came back after last week because we really started wading our way through it. In fact, it, it felt Ecclesiastes feels a lot like what the weather's like outside. Um, you know, this week we had some nice days, mid-60s, and then we turn around and then Sunday morning it's, you know, we've got drizzles and we've got, you know, sleeting and all this stuff. It's just kind of a, a, a rude prank, um, it seems to be. And I hate to tell you this, but we're just getting started. Um, last week was sort of uh, the thesis statement of the book, and then as... Uh, Solomon or the preacher uh, makes his way through the rest of the book. He's basically expounding on his thesis. So there's a lot more where this came from. And what just reading the book of Ecclesiastes is really like a, a lesson in stamina and endurance. Um, it, it's a matter of grinding it out and putting our nose down and just sort of plugging our way through it, which is really a characteristic, a trait that we need to get through life. Um, when you think about it, life is, in fact, a marathon, a mega marathon. Um, I, I'm not a runner. That's not something that I aspire to be. Um, but I imagine that if, if you wanted to enjoy a marathon, um, which the notion of that seems absurd to me, to enjoy a marathon, a lot goes into finishing well. Um, those of you who have done this before, you know. Um, obviously, there's a physical training that has to happen. You're, you're, you've got a, a running calendar that maybe Monday you run three miles and the next day you run seven and it keeps progressing you forward until you can run the whole marathon in one shot. 
Um, so there's a physical training, schedule, the, the, the training for your body. And then there's the idea, you want to be familiar with the course that you're about to set out on. Uh, it's that time of the year where the Bix at 6 is going to start going through. So it's, it's like if you want to get through Davenport, it's going to be a mess. Uh, people running around preparing for the Bix. Uh, and, and so you want to get familiar with the course. Know where the inclines are. Know when you can push it. Know when you can back off and slow down. You want to be familiar with the territory. But I think the underlying most important preparation that goes into preparing for a marathon is the mental work, Right? You have to have a compelling why. Why am I going to put myself through miles and miles of misery? Um, and maybe you don't think of it that way. That's just what my thought is on it. Uh, what's going to keep you going? That, that's an important factor if you're going to make this marathon uh, a pleasant experience. I had a cousin who actually a couple years ago uh, got to run the New York Marathon, uh, and he did it in, in honor of his, his dad who passed away. Uh, and so it was kind of neat what he did. He, he got a bunch of sponsors to kind of rally around, adopt him for a mile. And so like on mile 16, this family would be thinking of him, praying for him. I'm um, just saying, hey, we're cheering you on, right? People coming behind him. He had a very compelling why as to why he wanted to run this marathon. And I believe that if we have good preparation like that, if you, if you can embrace the challenge, find a good why, not only will you reach the finish line, but there's a good chance that you might enjoy it as you go. Now, the same concept applies to life. Now, in life, we don't have the convenience of knowing every twist and turn that we're going to take. Uh, in life, there is no guarantee that physically our bodies are going to hold up. I never thought at age 26 I'd be diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. I didn't think that was going to happen. There's no guarantees. But if you have the chance. Everybody has a chance. Everybody has the opportunity to consider the why. What's going to push me through? And this question of why, what is the why, is a quest for meaning and significance. Now, it's actually quite difficult to, to kind of think through this. Think through what is the meaning? What's the significance of life? Because as it turns out, it's less Hallmark Holiday and more La, Mais, La Miserable. Did I say that right? I don't, the, it, it's this idea that it's not all cheery and delightful. It's, it's actually a dark sort of twisted endeavor to really contemplate the, the meaning of life. It's hard to look honestly at life under the sun and consider what there is to enjoy. That's exactly what the preacher is doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's, he's helping us to examine life under the sun He's trying to show us where we can and cannot find meaning. But today we're in a passage where he's trying to show us really how we can enjoy life. What's the lens that we must look through? Now, if you weren't here last week, you might be asking, who is this preacher? Who is this guy that's telling me how to enjoy life, how to get the most out of life? And, and the voice that we're hearing from in this book is the voice of King Solomon. If you don't know anything about King Solomon, he was the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful man ever to live, aside from Jesus. He had every pleasure at his fingertips. He had every bit of wealth at, at his advantage that he could expend and he knew firsthand where he could and couldn't find pleasure in life. 
He's been there, he's done that. And he starts this whole book by asking, what is there to gain? What is the point? What is there to really hold on to in this life? And, and after asking this question, part A of his thesis, there's, there's more to it, but he's gonna make us really sit in this part A of his thesis for a long time, is that everything under the sun is vanity, Right, that word vanity can be translated vapor, this translucent, elusive sort of thing that you, you can sort of see, but you try to grab a hold on it. Nothing is there. He, uh, in the NIV translation, it translate, translates as meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Last week, we, we took a look at this thesis, and we saw that life is a never-ending, monotonous cycle of futility. Nothing changes, nothing's new, nothing's remembered, nothing's really of substance. In fact, Anne Lamont says, 100 years from now, all new people. Now, when the, when the preacher uses this phrase, life under the sun, what, what he's really trying to communicate to us, and, and this is essential for understanding this book of the Bible, is he's saying, he's, he's showing a life that represents life without God. That, that what's before us is all that, that there is. What we can see, what we can all hold on to, that's, that's the place where we have to find meaning and significance. In fact, we can look at all this stuff that, that's out there, and, and, and he's going to say, everything is quite bleak. It's, it's vapor. It's, and, and he's going to show us here, as we unpack the rest of, of the book of Ecclesiastes, he's going to show us his work here. It's like in math class, right? You, you get the answer, but the teacher wants you to, to show your work, to show how you came to that conclusion. And that's precisely what he's going to do. So you can think of verses 1 through 11 in chapter 1 as sort of uh, uh, as if it's a scripture reading even. He, here's the scripture reading, and then he's going to spend the rest of Ecclesiastes unpacking it as if, as if he's preaching a sermon. Now, now when you think about it, J.I. Packer says that the Bible is God preaching, and then here inside of the Bible we have Solomon preaching, and now here I'm preaching on Solomon's preaching of God's preaching. So it's a little bit like sermon inception here today. Uh, and and he, what, he, what he's trying to do here in, in getting into this is dismantle Every little yeah, but, every little pushback that we might have about his thesis. And here's the danger that, that I really want to highlight for us today. That if we don't see life like the preacher does, then, then we run two major errors. You'll either be overhyped, you'll be really almost oblivious to, to the futility for the frustration of life. You, everything will be honky-dory. Everything's blessed and highly favored. Everything's awesome, sort of ignorant, or you're going to see life for what it is. You're going to see the futility of this world and the frustration, and you're going to be, become despondent. Like, what, what is the point? What, what does this world have to offer. In fact, the people who typically are really hyped up about things like this uh, on the outside, inside they feel this inner ugh. And so today, the preacher is going to help us swat through the vapor of life to kind of make a clearing to see what actually matters. And he is going to not only show us what matters, but he's going to show us how we can enjoy life for all it has to offer. 
Now, if you would open your Bibles with me, uh, the Pew Bibles, it's page 319. Uh, We've got to make our way through this real quick because, honestly, in retrospect, it should be three different sermons. But I'm going to move as quickly as I can uh, as the preacher dissects the various outlets where someone might search for meaning in life. And, And it's fitting that the wisest man begins this quest with wisdom itself. In verse 13, the preacher says, I applied my heart to this quest of knowledge, wisdom. What he's saying here is that he went in all in. He exerted himself to the fullest extent. He didn't hold anything back. He's going after wisdom. And in verse 16, we're told that he accumulated so much wisdom that it uh, it surpassed any other king that came before him. Now, this is really impressive, right? We look at guys like Steve Jobs, uh, uh, um, all kinds of geniuses that have come and gone, uh, uh, gosh, Isaac Newton. These guys impress us, right, with their smarts. Now, I've, I have several books in my study. Uh, I think that I've read only maybe a tenth of them at this point. I'd like to keep moving through those. But, but in the tenth of the books that I've read, I have realistically only retained maybe 10% of the wisdom that those books have to offer. Now, that's not to be said about King Solomon. Whatever King Solomon applied himself toward, he gleaned. He he understood it. He he had a huge library, and he completely absorbed everything that there was to grasp. Now, just think about it. How many times a day do you think you turn to Google for an answer? Right? I go there a lot. In fact, I, I checked. There are over three and a half billion searches on Google every single day. Now just think of this. If you're King Solomon, you don't need Google. You are Google, right? You know it all. And so he searched and he searched and he searched and he knew and he he gained wisdom. Yet in verse 13, he says, this wisdom is an unhappy business God gave man. Now there's two pieces of that. The first is he's... The vanity piece, right? We'll get to that. But, but there's this language that might seem a bit uncomfortable for us because it sounds like he's accusing God of making wisdom what it is. Now, there's a rawness here, as we'll see as we progress through where he, get, he grows from frustrated and angry and hating and just sort of despondent. Here is the beginning of it. He, he has this sort of posture this is, this, is what, this is the lot that God gave us. Now, Solomon is wise to know that, that it wasn't God who made Adam and Eve do what they did in the Garden of Eden. Right? It wasn't God who, who tempted them. In fact, if, if we think about it, there is much worse things that God could be giving man to do than to search out wisdom. And in this, what, what Solomon is showing here by saying that God gave man this unhappy business, is that wisdom and these other things actually come from God. In itself, though it might be uh, perplexing and and challenging and not very fulfilling, it is a gift. It is a gift from God. It's a common grace. Yet, this gift of wisdom that God has given man is much like chasing after the wind. It's a never-ending feat. Now, we've been fed a lie, lots of lies, actually, but this one particular, that knowledge is power. 
Now, that might be true in the education world, but when we look at things through the lens of Solomon here in the cosmic meaning of life sense, we find out that statement is false because he accumulates all this knowledge, all this wisdom, just to say in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. See, wisdom and knowledge isn't helpful. It isn't power because it just shows you what things are, why things are, but it doesn't give you the power or the ability to fix them. See, even today with all the wisdom of of Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, the crooked world is still crooked Everything that they do, as good and noble as it is, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. It doesn't fix the brokenness. And because of all this, he comes to the conclusion in verse 18, where he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. What he's saying, wisdom only compounds sorrow and vexation, this frustration, this irritability. It's like giving a Rubik's Cube to a former Rubik's Cube champion. I don't know if that's a thing. I'm making it up if it is. Who's recently had his hands amputated, right? He can't do anything. He knows all the algorithms. He knows how to solve the puzzle, but he doesn't have the ability to do it. That is the sorrow that wisdom carries with it. And so he says, vanity, wisdom is this vapor. It doesn't offer us meaning. In fact, it's, it's almost a grace that God lets wisdom be what it is because we could just spend our whole life searching out wisdom. To, to be wise enough to come to the conclusion that, that wisdom is vapor is a gift. But it still produces sorrow. And, and the common response to sorrow, self-indulgence. It's shopping, substance abuse, sex, fine dining, art and music, power plays to assert your dominance and power, even more positive things like creating and building and and, and doing projects around the house, working out, taking care of uh, our, our gardens. See, that's the next stop on the preacher's quest for this meaning and gain in life with his unlimited resources. He says, I accumulated a lot of gold, a lot of silver, a lot of people. I had the ability, the resources to do whatever I wanted to do. And in verse or chapter 2, he starts off by saying this. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you, that's talking to himself, with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He is chasing away all the downers of wisdom with all the pleasures that he could find in this world. And the place that he starts is in verse two with with laughter. Now we are a people who love laughter, right? We love our memes. We love our funny graphic t-shirts. We love the lighthearted comedic banter that we find in sitcoms. We love our friends who are funny. We love, we love uh, comedians. We love podcasts that keep us busy. And it's because laughter is a good distraction. For a moment, it allows us to escape from the frustration and the reality of the world. We're even told that laughter is to be of the best medicine. 
But the preacher comes to a very different conclusion. He says, laughter, it is mad. He said, laughter is delusional because the futility of this world isn't funny at all. When you see the world for what it is, there's nothing to laugh about. Now, watching America's Funniest Home Videos with the people falling off trampolines, all the groin shots, that'll only keep you occupied for so long, right? It's funny for a moment. My, my, my wife goes crazy over America's Funniest Home Videos. She, she doesn't think anything else that I think is funny. I'll be watching these, you know, like The Office or something that's got some witty humor, and she's like, this is stupid, and then America's Funniest Home Videos pops up, and she's just busting a gut. I don't get it. But AFV will only get us so far. If you think about it, most of the material that stand-up comedians use is rooted in the frustrations and the pains of real-life experiences. Right? They're squeezing their failed marriage for all of the laughter they can get out of it. All the pain, all the agony. Now, not to mention that some of the funniest people who have ever walked the earth have been absolutely miserable. Jim Carrey, there's a documentary on Netflix right now. Honestly, I think he's probably one of the most miserable men alive right now. Think of Jim Belushi, um, Jim Carrey. Like, you can go through the line of these guys that have made a career out of being funny, but there's this in interior depletion that they experience where life just isn't funny. Now, this is almost a caution for us that if, if laughter, if the funny stuff in life really satisfies us in a way that, that gives us meaning, it means that, one, we're either deranged, right? We're like mad scientists laughing at this, this terrible joke on, on mankind, or we're oblivious to the pain and the realities of life. Because the soil of laughter is pain. But the preacher says, you know what, this laughter stuff, maybe we can make something out of it. Maybe we, we can take it an extra mile if we add something else to it. And so he says, you know what, we're going to explore every sensual pleasure I can think of. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says that nothing is off limits. Anything he wanted to do, he went after it. Every impulse was chased to the nth degree. And he starts in verse 3 by saying, you know what, perhaps a bottle of wine or, or maybe two will do the trick. Maybe that 30-year-old scotch or any substance, really, will help me. Now, it looks like he's getting a little sauce, but he, but he tells us he's, he's exercising wisdom here. He's not, he's not in it to get plastered and forget about his problems, but what Solomon is doing is he's searching for the best that the world has to offer. Now, in 1 Kings, we're told about the mass quantity of daily portions that King Solomon had during his, his rule. Uh, every day, he had enough food to feed 35,000 people. That was just his portion set aside for the king. The finest wines, the best food, the best chefs were all at his disposal. He was after quality, not quantity. He wanted the best of the best. But, but what he's going to show us here that, that even the best food and the best drink, the best thing that any society can create, will end up in the same place as a cup of ramen noodles and bush light. This, this high, this buzz, 
will fade and we're left right where we started once we've exerted all of our effort to search it out in food and drink. And typically what happens at the end of this, if if we're not loaded like King Solomon, it means that we're without money now and we have a much bigger mess on our hands. Because with strong drink, it can often lead us to make poor decisions in the bedroom. Now, this is just another place where King Solomon explored sensuality. Now, we can see how alcohol can, can lower a woman's standards, where she might find uh, an embrace in the man that her, her sober standards wouldn't allow, wouldn't approve. And boyish men, they prey on this. They get what they want, and she gets what she wants only for it to be gone in the morning. And the scary part is nowadays, this intimacy that was designed for two people, two people devoted to one another inside the covenant of marriage can now be replaced by a screen. There are too many Christian men and women, too many Christian marriages that are being corroded by the empty allure of pornography. It's just, just try this out. Search out this pleasure. The pleasure of sex is is not a significant source of meaning. And and if anybody knows this, it's Solomon and his 1,000 partners that he had. He had some 300 wives, 700 concubines. King Solomon made Hugh Hefner look like Billy Graham. And and it's easy for us to look at, obviously that's not going to be fulfilling, but even if we consider the wisdom of King Solomon from in Song of Songs, where he delights in the bride of his youth, where, where he, he limits himself to the confines of this, this one woman for life, still the purest, most unadulterated romance of a husband and wife doesn't offer the gain that we're looking for. Now, after Solomon exhausts his inner frat boy, he turns to more constructive pleasures in verses four through eight. He's, he's building houses. He's planting vineyards and gardens. He's building parks and orchards. He's creating pools and streams. He's exercising his ability as one of the best architects in human history. And, and what he's doing here, if you really look at this, what he's doing is, is very reminiscent of, of the Garden of Eden. He's creating a world within a world creating his own kingdom, and it's stocked with loyal people, abundant riches, numerous possessions, and the finest musicians. This is luxury to the max. Now, this might seem a little over the top, right? When you, when you really build this out, over the top, King Solomon had every, every ounce of wealth that he could want to exert towards this end. And in a sense, we want this too. There's a reason why we love HGTV so much, right? To see those beautiful homes overlooking the acreage or or the the ocean view with the garages and the beautiful gardens, the pools. And and it's like in those spaces we can visualize the loved ones, what we have coming in and out for the parties that we would throw. And, And here at these parties, there's special entertainment. Taylor Swift's out by the pool, The Beatles are down in the basement. Frank Sinatra's in the lounge. The best of the best musicians there to entertain us. We've got Chef Gordon Ramsay catering every meal for us. The best wine. 
the best scotch right there at our fingertips. Anything that you want is right there. Now, now to us, this is like, a, it can be like a dream, right? A fantasy, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But this was Solomon's life every single day. Like, that's what he had. Every day. Solomon is at the top. I mean, literally at the top of the world. He's extracted all of the pleasures that could be extracted from this world. There's not one stone unturned. Every sensory receptor has been stimulated. Touch, sound, taste, sight, sense. He is a master of pleasure. Yet after all this experiment, he says in in verse 11, that there's still no gain. Verse 11, then I consider all that my hands had done. Now, listen, if you go back a couple verses, it'll tell you, you know what? In the moment, this stuff was really good. I enjoyed it. But then when I sat back to think about it, this is what he comes to the conclusion of. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. See, he's exposing this, the, the paradox of hedonism. Hedonism is, is the constant pursuit of joy, of pleasure. And, and this is the paradox. The more you hunt for pleasure, the less you'll find it. Now, there are other people, not just King Solomon who's been at the top. There are other people that have come and gone who have been completely unsatisfied by the best of the best. But not just unsatisfied, like devastated almost to the institutional level. There's the the best-selling British novelist, Jack Higgins, who wrote a book called The Eagle Has Landed, sold over 50 million copies. That that means, uh, statistically, one in six Americans own this book or have read this book. He's the author of authors. And then this is what he says. Once he's, he's reached the climax of his success, Somebody asks him, you know, what, what do you think of all this? And he says, I wish I would have known then what I know now. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. Or, or Boris Becker, who's a tennis champ. He won three Grand Slam tournaments in a row. And after winning, you know, supposed to be the super victorious celebratory moment, he, they ask, now what's going to be your greatest challenge? He says, the greatest challenge is now going to be to find a reason not to kill myself. Or Marie Antoinette, with all the pomp and luxury that she in her life had, she says, nothing tastes. That's a dark spot to be, to find the best of the best, to have it at your fingertips, to reach success and accolade, and to say, for what? What's to gain About this point, we're hoping for some good news, but the misery continues. I told you, this is going to be a test of endurance for us. Solomon goes back to the idea of living wisely. He said, maybe I've got to retrace my steps. Maybe I left something out. So he's go back to wisdom in verse 12. And he does come to the conclusion that certainly wisdom is better than being foolish. Right? In verse, verse 13, uh, he says... Then I saw 
that there is more to gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more to gain in light than in darkness. And the funny thing is, he can't really put his finger on why that's the case or why that's true, because the next thought he has is, it's all going to shake out the same for both the fool and for the guy who's, who's lived wisely. Death is an equal opportunity employer. 100% of people who live will die. It's coming for both the fool and for the person who's lived wisely. Verse 15. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And that's to say that there are gonna be some people who live long happy lives, people who are going to use wisdom to their advantage, and they're going to, be, and they're, they're going to get to a ripe old age, and they're going to pass away. And there's going to be some people who are foolish who are going to die because a firework exploded in their hand, right? Either way, death is going to find everyone. It's coming. And now you can see the frustration starting to build because in verse 17, he, he starts to use some pretty harsh language. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. And this frustration continues straight into verse 18 where he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. See, the frustrating part is live wildly, live, foolish, live foolishly either way. When you, when you die, all the stuff that you accumulate gets left behind. You have to fork everything. That's what death demands. Death demands that you fork everything over that you work so hard for. All your overtime pay, all your savings, your investments, the gadgets, the property, the cars, all the plaques and accomplishments that you have on your wall, death takes it. And what happens is it gives those things to people who didn't work for it like you did. More than likely, or, or at least it runs the chance of giving those things to someone who's going to squander it. Right, that's where he goes on in verse, verse 19. And, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. I, I must leave, I gotta back up. He says, seeing that, um, I must leave, it, leave my stuff to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. He will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. Now Solomon's worst fear actually comes true here. When Solomon passes away, the kingdom of Israel quickly starts to deteriorate. The kingdom that he worked so hard for to build starts to, to break. His son, who inherits the throne, within a matter of time, will split God's people in two, cause major divisions. We see even guys like Warren Buffett. 
He knows this reality, and he's made a vow that he's not gonna pass on his property, his, his money, all of the, the wealth that he's accumulated. He's not gonna give that to his kids. Right? They didn't work for it. So he protests. Why should all this hard work fall to someone who doesn't deserve it? Now let's say you're over this, right? I don't care. I don't have a lot to pass on anyway. It doesn't bother me. But there's still frustration Because all the toil, all the work that you've done in your life, every little accomplishment means nothing in the long term. And that's one thing that we all desire to have is meaningful work, work that we go to. We know we helped somebody, made the world a better place, and we did something worth of meaning, of value. But here, even Solomon says that that the work itself, the good feelings, if we are lucky enough to have a job that we enjoy the work of doing, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's insufficient for giving us meaning. It doesn't last. Somebody else is going to come, come after you, right? All your hard work. Let's say you buy a house, you renovate it, you spend, spend years making this house a dream house for you. You go to sell the house, next buyers come in. They've got their own renovations in mind. All that work that you invested in this house now is going to be redone. Somebody else is going to come and rewrite their own work over the top of it. So Solomon finally comes to the point between work with the pleasures, with laughter, with wisdom. He, he's literally scraping the bottle, bottom of the barrel of, of everything that life has to offer. He's exhausted every avenue of pleasure and said there's no gain. In verse 22, 23, summarizes He says, what is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. This also is vanity. He's shown his work, vanity of vanities. This is why he can say what he says. He's exhausted everything and it's vapor. There's nothing to hold on to. There's no meaning. There's no substance. There's no fulfillment under the sun. All he has found at this point is is sorrow and vexation and exhaustion. Now, some of us look at this, and we live in a different world than King Solomon, right? We we don't want to be the best and the richest and and the most valued. We don't want to be the wisest. We're, We're okay with the middle of the road. At least I know I am. I don't aspire to be the greatest man who's ever lived. So we're trying to find this loophole to discredit Solomon. We don't need all the pomp. We don't need all the thrills. We don't need all the excess. Just give me an average, middle-of-the-road life. But here's the thing, that even this middle-of-the-road, this conservative in how we spend and absorb and enjoy, this, this middle-of-the-road life will still be insufficient for giving us meaning. Or right, we'd say moderation, right? That middle-of-the-road, moderation, still insufficient. It, even, even when we get that, that meager salary or, you know, a, a humble salary, even when we get that the house, that's really nothing to shout about, but we want it. Like even when we get those things, it doesn't matter. It's all vapor, leaves us wanting. 
Now, we go through all this, and we must realize that Solomon is not prohibiting any of this. He's not saying this is the new law, that you need to abstain from any pleasure. That's not at all what he's saying. This is not a list of do's and don'ts, and he's not promoting a prudish mentality. If, if anything, this is sort of an invitation to test him, right? Try it out. Give, give it all you got. Try to prove him wrong, and you'll find you'll just prove him right, that, that whatever you put yourself to, insignificant. And he's certainly not denying that there's pleasure in any of these things. He's not, he's not denying. In fact, he, he says that. I, I found those things, and in the moment, my heart found pleasure in them. But this good stuff that he has latched onto is not sufficient. That's the whole thing. What is there to gain? He, nothing. Now, we, we've, we've waded into this bog of misery, and now there's finally a, a burst of light in almost three chapters of this book, there's not been really one positive thing said. And now we finally come to something positive in verse 24. He says, there is nothing better. Ooh, better. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, this seems antithetical to everything that he said so far, right? He, in fact, like you look at this, he basically just said the opposite leading up to this. But he goes on to put this, this eat and drink and enjoyment into a new light in verse 24 and 25. He says, there's nothing better for a person than that, that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Now, remember Earlier he said wisdom is, is from God, the, the quest, the unhappy quest of man. He's still acknowledging it's a gift from God. But now he's saying, look, I, I see that, that eating and drinking and finding enjoyment is indeed from God. But then he says this in verse 25, which, which is the key to understanding this whole text. For apart from him, that is God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That's the key. See, it's God who gives the gifts. He gives the gifts of food and sex and drink and laughter. But it's also God who gives the ability to enjoy the gift. That without God, these things that, that, that are good... They're useless. It's like, it's like giving somebody a can of peaches without a can opener. It's hard to enjoy the nice aluminum taste of a can of peaches. But if you have a can opener to open up that can and you can taste the sweetness of those, those peaches, that is how you enjoy it. It's not just in the gift itself, but in the means in which you enjoy the gift. And God is saying here, King Solomon is saying that God is the one that we enjoy these gifts through. Now, he classifies two kinds of people. He says there's the sinner. It's that, that's the person, not, not necessarily we think of a sinner as somebody who's, who's done wrong. Uh, and in, in some places in Scripture, that, that's the, the connotation that a sinner carries. But in this setting, a sinner is somebody who goes about doing life without God. He says 
The sinner always will have this work of gathering and collecting. The person without God is always chasing the wind, trying to accumulate nothing. But he says there's a different kind of person. He says, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. See, it's the one who, who has a mind, a heart that sees beyond what's under the sun and sees above the sun that sees past the vapor of what this world has to offer and really clings to what is uh, of substance. And in Psalm 16, we're told that when we look to God, that when we're in God's presence, we find ourselves filled with joy. Now, a lot of times we think of spiritual pleasures, right? The the joy of salvation, the freedom of forgiveness, the the redemption, the the reconciliation which we receive, which is absolutely yes and amen. But there's a profound way of joy that we have right here, right now, in this life, that through God, we can enjoy these simple pleasures in the little things like food and drink. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment. See, this is the power of the gospel. It's not just about, it's not just about a spiritual world. It's God breaking through and redeeming the spiritual world, but also the physical world, taking the things that are like, like broken vessels that really can't hold joy inside of it and mending them and making them as utensils to carry out a deep delight, not only in the thing itself, but the giver of the gift. This is from the hand of God. And God He's given us a meal to remember that by. We come to the table to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Like Every time we come to the Lord's table, it's a celebration. We're not, in one sense, yes, we're, we're lamenting that my sin led Jesus to the cross, that his body had to be broken for mine, that his blood had to be shed in place of mine. But in another sense, we're coming to the Lord's table because this is a party. This is where we find enjoyment. This is where we can remember what Jesus has done, that he's broken into the world, that he, he's, he's reinventing the world from the inside out, that even the physical things can carry joy. And we're remembering that God is here at the table with us. This is a meal that, that doesn't just take us to elements, it takes us to God. That our eyes, that our heart is fixed on God and what he has done. That he is sustaining us spiritually through these elements. That he's working in them to increase our joy in him through the gifts in this world. This is what we're doing when we come to the Lord's table. God is breaking in. He's giving meaning to what's physical. He's giving joy for us to enjoy right now. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the way that you have, have uh, met our needs. That, that in in the, the vapor of, of meaningless that this world has offered, you have stepped in and you've given us something of substance to hold on to, that it is Christ. That we can say, as we sung this morning, and I pray that we would mean it this morning, 
Take the world, take it all away, but give me Jesus. That's the supreme gift. That's what our hearts ache and long for, and you have been gracious to give it to us free of charge. Father God, would you bless us? Would you, would you sustain us by faith? Help us to enjoy the physical just as the spiritual realities of the gospel. Father God, for, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray.